This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. By golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm your host, Zach Moore, and I'm flying solo today in the captain's chair, but I have a very special guest from the Discovery Debrief podcast, Mr. Chris Clow. What's up, Chris? Thank you very much for having me, man. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, I followed your podcasting for a long time, Chris, so it's great to actually sit down and, and finally have a discussion with you about some of these nerdy topics we love so much, but uh, San Diego Comic-Con was just a week, week plus ago, and they're big announcement about Batman the Animated Series. Not only is it going to be on the DC Universe streaming service, which I have subscribed to, but also it is coming out on Blu-ray in HD. So what a perfect time, I thought, to look at the crossover between Batman the Animated Series and Star Trek the original series. There was a lot of voice talent who did voices on the Batman the Animated Series that were guest stars on Star Trek or TOS or original stars themselves or in the movies. Sounds And that sounds like such a great idea for a show because you're basically melding together my favorite elements of fiction itself. So this is going to be a blast. I'm really looking forward to it. Chris and I are fellow uh, DC comic fans to the highest level. So this will be a lot of fun to, to break all this down. But before that, Chris, you know, let's get into your Star Trek fandom, man. How did you first discover Star Trek? Tell us about you know some highlights in your Trekkie fandom and, and uh, what brought you to be the Star Trek fan you are today. Oh, man. Well, let's see. You know, I don't really remember a time without it, basically. Um, my, I was born at the tail end of 87, so TNG had been on the air for a few months by that point. And I, had a, I have a brother who's five years older than me, who uh, was basically an in for me. You know, every time you have an older sibling who's got similar interests to you, you always kind of revere whatever they do. And I think that was kind of what latched me on to Star Trek when I was a young kid. And, uh, but I differed from my brother, and I differ from a lot of even other contemporary Star Trek fans that I know because the original series is my favorite. Those are the characters that I attach to so much in, in the entire franchise, and it's because of the strength of the crew itself and their, their whole dynamic. I think that that's the most pure and... Uh, exciting funny examples in the entire franchise of a crew 
the original series, you just, I don't just, you can't get better than that. So I attached to the original series pretty quickly as a young kid. I mean, it helps that it's so colorful when you're, when you're young and in single digit ages. But as time went on too, I think I, I, I tend to have a bias towards, uh, I guess, original examples of a lot of things, you know, like Barry Allen is my favorite flash. Uh, the original series is my favorite Star Trek, and I think it's because of the purity of the vision. Um, and, and as I've gotten older, it's I've, I've done nothing but appreciate it more as time has gone on, because it was really the original series that ignited the ideas that the, the franchise is built upon today. And as far as uh, highlights of my Trek fandom, I, I couldn't even begin to list how many wonderful memories I have of just absorbing the entirety of the canon. Uh, you know, whether it's stuff in, a, in official productions, whether it's uh, EU stories that I've really attached to that I wish were in continuity but that aren't, or, uh, you know, comics. I think Star Trek comics today are in probably one of the best places that they've ever been. Oh, I absolutely agree on that. Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, Star Trek just speaks to my inherent hope for the future and the fact that as captain Picard once said, the human race will mature and will grow beyond the limitations that we have now. That spirit of optimism always keeps me coming back to it. And, uh, and that's why star Trek is my favorite spacefaring franchise by a mile. Awesome, man. Well, no, that's a great, that's a great story and journey there. And, and, you know, so your favorite flash is Barry Allen. Well, technically he's the second flash, right? So, True. Yes. Got you there. Uh, and I love Jay Garrick. I love Jay Garrick. I do. I guess uh, I just I've got to kind pull of some a comic nerd cred on you. That's all. True. 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 No, it, it, but I mean, I think that that's kind of part of it too. Like Silver Age mentalities, Silver Age aesthetics, really charm me. Hmm. And Star Trek, I think, very much falls into that same kind of uh, that same kind of zeitgeist. You know, when you're talking about yeah, that. I've heard that TOS be described as transistor punk oh yeah you know they yeah. steampunk which is like you know the 1890s kind of jules verne but you know i, I like that like the, the the switches and the and the, the, there's something about that and that's why i love you know a big like disney fan and all that stuff as well mm -hmm. in, the, in the parks i love like the the past vision of the future yeah you know there's something just so cool about that and you know some people the more cynical out there would probably say it's cheesy and whatnot but i i find it very interesting to to look back Look back at people looking forward, right? Oh, and that's sure. what TOS is more than anything. You have, I mean, but but they they predict certain technologies amazingly, but yes. then they completely miss on others. So it's interesting to kind of fill in the gaps. Like, yeah, they didn't know about the internet and stuff back then, but at the same time, they're talking on cellular phones. They're using you know uh, USBs mm -hmm. uh, or you know if you want to date it back further, uh, I guess eight floppy disks. Right, you know, yeah. A drives, the little disks that yeah. Spock or whoever. Yeah, those tapes. Yeah, check the data tapes. You know. <laughs> Uh, but even today, right? Even today, we say, "Hey, are you going to record that? Are you going to tape that? You know, or you know, film at eleven or something?" Right. Like, no, there's, there's no film, there's no tape. It's all digital. But even today, in the 21st century, when those terms are antiquated, we're still using them. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like it's completely outrageous for you know, in the 23rd century, someone to refer to something as a record tape or whatnot. It's just the way you know society has the terminology it's used has, has changed. But um, but yeah, no, I love that kind of stuff, and that, that's what I gravitate towards. TOS as well. If I had to pick one, obviously, you know, you and I are around the same age, so I say Next Generation is probably my Star Trek, mm -hmm. but TOS is Star Trek, and you can't argue right. that. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, there's the, the beautiful thing about Star Trek, and the, the people 
who truly understand the and embrace the versatility of it as a franchise. They know that you don't have to necessarily pick a side, you know? Um, right. I mean, I love the next generation just as much as anybody else. I mean, if I had to, if you put a gun to my head and made me try and name the most objectively best Star Trek show, if that's possible, I would probably say Deep Space Nine, personally. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, though, that TOS still isn't my favorite. Uh, and it's it's for a number of different reasons, but I think that you can absolutely acknowledge the highs and the lows that the franchise has visited without having to necessarily cede to, well, if your sensibilities tell you that this show is your favorite over another one, then listen to your sensibilities. You know, you can acknowledge the the realities of the wider franchise while still going to your corner and loving what you love for no other reason than that's why you love it so that's mm-hmm. uh, th- and I, I think that that can speak a lot to p- uh, people's opinion sort of discovery as well oh <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a very you know in 2009 when the the first kelvin movie came out it was really really disorienting for me and maybe you feel the same way because star trek was cool you know, it was cool for about six months after the movie came out. And that was very, very unusual for me to, to hear that from people and like hear them get excited about Star Trek. But it was also kind of a, a, a point of division among the fandom. Rightfully so. I mean, the, the movie was trying to do some very, very different things with, uh, with the characters and with the world. But yeah, Discovery seems like it's taken that even further, probably because... It has very much referred to what has been established in the franchise before, but I think the biggest controversy is probably just the aesthetic choices, even though mm. in, the, in the scheme of things, it's not really that big. And at the beginning, seems some Trek fans sort of checked out because they thought that this was going to be a, a more cynical Trek completely, and it didn't end up being that, which I really admire about the trajectory of the first season. I knew I, I was one of the, I was one of those people, you know. And that's that I love what you said about for about six months, Star Trek was cool because <laughs> '09 it was. Yeah. I mean, I loved '09 when it came out. It's exactly what it needed to be. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a genius way to reboot and also have a prequel and sequel to the franchise. I just applause all oh, all yeah. the way across the board. Yeah. And unfortunately, they and we've talked about this many times here on Standard Orbit. They've squandered all the momentum from that, taking so long for Into Darkness. Mm-hmm. Into Darkness was divisive. Uh, it took a while to get Beyond. Beyond was great. I love Beyond. Yeah. Uh, might be the best of the three. I don't know. I go back and forth between that and 09. But it just it takes them so long yeah. <laughs> to come out with these movies. They, they cannot keep the momentum up. And I just, I, 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 it's sad that it's been 10 years coming up next year and we've only got three movies. Yeah. You know? Sure. Uh, but all that, all that to say, um, th- there was, the, Star Trek had, and then Star Wars was gone, right? Mm-hmm. Let's not, not forget that. So Star Trek had a chance to kind of like be the big, sci-fi space franchise but then Star Wars came back and the Star Trek movies take a while and whatnot uh the thing about you know Discovery is and I you know I was one of those people I think you know looking back in context now I don't know I wish they had maybe started with the third episode of Discovery and shown that to everyone Mm -hmm. because because the first two episodes are not really the show and then to only show the first half of the first two-hour pilot because traditionally all the Star Trek shows have been two-hour pilots uh, and hey, if you want to get real technical, the original series had two one-hour pilots. So, <laughs> so even back to there. Um, but then to show half of it to the public and say, "Hey, did you like that? Come pay us some money and watch the rest." It, it was an odd choice. You creatively. know, 
this has actually been a, a point of not contention, but vigorous debate on Discovery mm-hmm. Debrief on my show because uh, there's at least one or two of our panelists who really feel that the show should have started with the introduction of Discovery. I I don't really subscribe to that personally, only because I love Philippa Giorgio. And I think that there's a lot of value that is provided by showing us the real Philippa Giorgio at the beginning of the show, mm. especially when we're able to juxtapose that with the with the mirror universe conception. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they couldn't have introduced Giorgio or what Michael did to her via flashback, I guess, mm-hmm. throughout most of the season. But I recently rewatched those first two episodes and I actually find a lot of value in them uh, just for kind of giving us an introduction and showing us almost like the prototypical real awesome Starfleet captain before we get introduced to this bastard of a guy that we're going to get for most of the show. Uh, That I think kind of justifies it, but I totally understand and acknowledge the validity of the idea that maybe it should have started when Discovery first showed up. Well, there you go. Now we got we've crossed plenty of streams here. We're talking about all kinds of Star Trek. We got Chris's <laughs> insight and his Trekkie fandom. Let's get into the topic at hand today: Batman the animated series and Star Trek the original series. Now, as a as a kid, you're watching these Batman the animated series, and did you watch it when it was on like Fox Kids, or did you kind of pick it up later? Yeah, um, it started. I think it started when I was in kindergarten. But it really picked up when I was in first grade, and I remember coming home from school, and it was on at like mm-hmm. four, four every day, man, on Fox every day. Kids, and yeah, and I was I was religiously devoted to it. Uh, so, I mean, and you know, early '90s, arguably the the second major heyday for Batman after the 1960s. Mm-hmm. You know, if you you know the tra- the trajectory and the history of the Batman character and his uh, penetration into popular culture. The 90s was so caught up in the Burton mm-hmm. films uh, that the the creation of the animated series was sort of the perfect way to try and take further advantage of that from the younger demographic. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to me, even watching the show today, which I do on a constant basis, how pretty mature the material is without being inappropriate for kids. Uh, they, they reached a really fine balance. But yeah, I mean, as it was on... Much like Star I, Trek, am I right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> very true. Very true. More more crossover there. But um, no, I watched it as much as I possibly could when I was a kid on, on, on Fox Kids. No, and, that, and that's an excellent point because this... This was an animated show, but, you know, like... And it's a it, other end of the spectrum, but similar approach. The Simpsons, right? Uh, an adult... Mm-hmm. Kind of show that you can, you know, is is quote unquote family entertainment uh, to a certain extent. Um, could have been live action, yeah. you know, if they wanted to. Uh, same thing, Batman the Animated Series. Like uh, the, these were the the nineties. Here was cartoons, or you know, I, cartoons is almost a derogatory term. Like this is animation. You know, it's it's not a it's not a genre. Right. It's a presentation form, right? That's the way I would describe it. And mm-hmm. and this wasn't in, in Batman the Animated Series. It even premiered in primetime. Uh, you know, and then it eventually yes. kind of settled into the Saturday morning and the weekday afternoon and stuff like that. So they were, they were writing for everyone, and of course you're going to attract audiences young and old. But just the the mindset behind it was, you know, we're not going to cast just you know random voice actors. And no, and this is not a slight to voice actors in any way. Voice actors are amazing, 
but they sure. went after just actors, period. You know, and and because of oh, that, yeah. a lot of the voices you hear on Batman the Animated Series are Star Trek veterans and familiar voices. And you know, when you're a kid, remember this is like pre-internet. We were paying like by the minute for internet back then, so you didn't have access to IMDb and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, it was too early to have all these reference manuals for every show ever. And so you're like, you know, that that person sounds familiar. You know, like well, that voice. Who was that voice? Right? You, you you remember that? And then you know you get a little older, you start you reading up on it. They start writing articles and magazines and whatnot, and you realize, oh my gosh, that guy was on Star Trek, or that woman was on Star Trek. And then you say, man, this is there's a lot of crossover here between you know Batman the Animated Series and Star Trek the original series. And you know there's lots of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, et cetera, voices as well. Oh sure. But you know, this is the Standard Orbit TOS podcast, so we're gonna we're gonna focus in on the TOS mm-hmm. talent that has uh, appeared on Batman the Animated Series in that universe. And I think. What, I mean, let, let's just start with the big one. If there is one, you know, to use a Star Trek analogy, right? Uh, best of both mm-hmm. worlds from Next Generation broke Next Generation into the mainstream, right? That's the episode that everybody gravitates towards. Yeah. So for Batman the Animated Series, that would be Heart of Ice, the Mr. Freeze episode. Absolutely. And I believe that won an Emmy. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but it was at least nominated. Yes, but, um, well... Beyond the, the, the critical acclaim that Heart of Ice received, I mean, you also have people who have spent their entire lives telling stories with Batman or with other comics characters who regard Heart of Ice as one of the single most definitive Batman stories ever told, regardless of medium. That is a singular achievement uh, in, in the very, very expansive history of the Batman character that goes back to 1939, that this episode of a tv show the 14th episode a very early one in the run overall it manages to break into the upper echelon of batman stories in general i mean that's what mark wade called it mark wade longtime comic book writer he's worked as an editor at both marvel and dc has really definitive runs on characters like the flash and he calls heart of ice one of the single best batman stories ever and i'm inclined to agree with him it recreates a villain that has a very, very high silly potential into not only one of the most vicious adversaries and most formidable adversaries that Batman has, has faced in his entire career, but he also gives him such extraordinary, or the episode gives him such extraordinary pathos that you can't help but admire the creative wizardry that went into crafting the story for that episode. Heart of Ice is far and away my favorite episode of the series. Same here, same here. And so much of that pathos is created by the actor portraying Mr. Freeze, Michael Ansara, yes. who is legendary yes. to Star Trek fans as Kang from the original series. He also appeared on D Space Nine and Voyager as Kang. And he's one of the big three Klingons from the original series. You have Kor, Koloth, and Kang. And, you know, of the three, I, I think I'm more of a Kang guy because he just had more to do. Yep. Uh, Koloth, although I love William Campbell and I like how he had a unique performance, he was a little more trouble with tribbles is its own kind of thing. You know, he was just in it. It wasn't really a he was yeah, very whimsical. My dear Captain yeah. Kirk, well, my dear Captain Koloth, you know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so that so so he he I immediately take him out of the running if you had to pick a favorite of the top three just because of that. So you have Core and you have Kang, and Core was great, but Kirk was like under disguise for most of the episode, and he was more of a dictator, didn't really get his hands yeah. dirty. But in Day of the Dove, there's action, right? Uh, right from the top, you get the Klingons and the. Uh, the Millennium Party, you know, fighting each other. They beam up to the Enterprise. There's this whole war on the Enterprise in Day of the Dove. 
and and Kang is just a very you know um, d- dynamic character, and I just his whole presence and his ambiance was very memorable, and he's the most you know serious one of when they bring him back in Blood Oath and Deep Space Nine too. Like he's the ringleader. There's a reason he's the leader of these three guys when they bring him back. And I 100 percent agree. So yes, you know, uh, that just he has such a unique voice, right? And it, it works so well with the Mister Freeze character, right? He's supposed to be like cold and without emotion, and he can totally do that. Like Michael Ansar just turned off like any kind of emotion, but the lack of emotion almost creates an emotion, and it's it's just a great performance. Uh, and not only the original episode, Heart of Ice, but it goes on. He's in Deep Freeze, which is a follow-up episode to this. He's in a, another episode, mm-hmm. which the name escapes me, in like the new Batman Adventures, which is like the technically the fourth season of Batman the Animated Series. Right, which was actually a follow-up to, the, they refer to the events of Sub-Zero in that episode. Sub-Zero, the animated movie, Sub-Zero, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and then so he was also in Batman Beyond, one of the few Batman villains that showed up all the way down there. And that, that whole character arc of Mr. Freeze carries through the entire DC animated universe. And that's one of my favorite threads of the whole universe. And, and Michael Ansara is like the beating heart of it. Absolutely. No, I, I you know, with Kang uh, on Day of the Dove, you're absolutely right in pointing out that this, it's the only real representation of a Federation Klingon conflict where both the captain on the Federation side and on the Klingon side are both directly in their element. And they, mm. they come together as equal and but equals and opposites and uh day of the dove is is one of my absolutely favorite episodes to watch of of the original series just because it so eloquently encapsulates that early federation klingon conflict that i can't help but just kind of bow to the greatness that ansara brought to the part of kang uh, and yeah, I'm I'm in a similar boat as you. Kang to me is sort of the definitive original series Klingon. Uh, I mean, I love Core just as much as the next guy, and I mm. love Errand of Mercy uh, indiscriminately. I mean, it's just it's such a really cool way to illustrate the uh, the ingenuity of Kirk and Spock in a specific situation. And Core, you know, he he's a definitive Klingon portrayal. Uh, you know, arguably, Core and Worf are probably the most two definitive Klingons that sort of establish what the culture is. Uh, even though there's some, I would pretty... say I would add Martok to that list as well. But yes, yeah, I, I would too. It's just not as foundational. Like Martok, you know, took things. Yeah, he did. He came much later. Yeah, I, right. I yeah, yeah. That's and that's the only thing. I mean, I love Martok to death, of course, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but yeah, Michael Ansara, just the quality of his voice, and it also speaks to the geniusness of Andrea Romano on the uh, mm-hmm. on the on the voice direction of Batman the Animated Series, because she even has said multiple times that the philosophy that drove the choices that they would make in the the voice casting process was not in getting actors who do character voices, as you alluded to earlier, but getting people who have voices with character. And that clear delineation point really helps to elevate Batman the Animated Series above even contemporary cartoons that come out today or animated series that come out today. Uh, just, just because, you know, you even compare with something that came immediately following, like Spider-Man the Animated Series, that was very much, you know, cartoon voice A actors. cartoon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love <laughs> even, that Even show. X-Men the Animated Series as well, I'd yeah. say. Yeah, uh, there was there was a clear difference. I mean, and th- those were great for what they were, but Batman the Animated Series transcends 
cartoons for, for these very reasons we're discussing here. Exactly. And Michael Ansara is a total encapsulation of why that casting philosophy worked so extremely well. Uh, because his voice had such a quality that was able to articulate and relate the emotions or lack thereof or <laughs> emotions through a lack thereof, as you talked about. Uh, and he, it's hard to, to think of something that could have worked out so perfectly. Uh, you even look at, um, I guess, sort of modern interpretations of Mr. Freeze, like the one that immediately comes to my mind is Maurice LaMarche in the Arkham games. Uh, but it's it's very much inspired by the work that Ansara did. Maurice LaMarche is very much a, a voice actor who's able to, you know, to create different pitches and consistent performances that way. So he, the fact that he was able to latch on to what Ansara did as sort of a spiritual succession of, uh, of, of how to voice Mr. Freeze, it shows you how foundationally important Ansara is to the conception of what we understand Mr. Freeze to be today. Yeah, he, he's the voice I hear in my head when I read a comic book with Mr. Freeze, absolutely. Same here, same here. Yeah, you can't, and you, really as a comic book fan, I don't think you can pay a higher compliment than, you know, that's who is in my permanent <laughs> voice cast in my own head. And I think it's, pretty much everyone from Batman the Animated Series is that for most of us. Pretty much, it? yeah. 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 The only one I go back and forth on is the Joker, just because in the comics there are so many varying interpretations of who the Joker is and what drives him, but that doesn't take away from the greatness of Mark Hamill's por portrayal of the Joker and, at all. You know, and aside to that real quick, Mark Hamill is in this episode, Heart of Ice, uh, the first Mr. Freeze episode, as a different yeah. character, as the guy who pretty much yeah. creates Mr. Freeze, the corporate CEO guy, Goth, Goth Corp. Yeah, yep, ex exactly, and... It's, it speaks to his ingenuity as a voice actor as well, because he's, as much as he has a voice with character, he's also able to, to change his, I mean, he's portrayed, so he portrayed the, the C, I don't know why, oh. Ferris Boyle. I keep wanting, Fer Ferris yeah. Boyle, yeah, I kept wanting to say Lyle Bolton, but that's locked that's a, up. I, I always thought that, that was some kind of pun of some kind, like cold, but boiling water, I don't know, maybe that was somewhere in there, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> hey, coming from Paul Dini, it wouldn't surprise me, but uh, no, I mean, he, Mark Hamill is, is able to portray so many different kinds of characters with his own voice work. I mean, he even played Wolverine in a video mm. game and did a pretty good job of it, too. But uh, that just speaks to the, the enduring philosophy of the casting for Batman the Animated Series and getting people who can evoke the characters pretty effortlessly. Luke Skywalker is the Joker. Who would have thought, right? So. Yeah, really. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, let's move on to another Batman villain. I would say... This next villain was not on people's radar as a, as a main Batman antagonist, but again, the animated series, much like Mr. Freeze, they put him on the, the upper echelon of Batman villains. For people who weren't familiar with the comic books as intimately as others, that would be Ra's al Ghul. Now, Ooh, how, do you, yeah. how do you say Ra's al Ghul? Do you say Raz or Ra's? What's, what's your school of Ra's al Ghul? <laughs> Denny O'Neill, creator of the character, says Ra's, so that's what I say. That is what I say as well. And I will say, I think Arrow did a good job when they first introduced him that some people called him Ra's, some people called him Raz. I'm like, all right, it's like yeah. a, a culture thing. Like, if you if you live over in Nandar Parvat, you <laughs> pronounce it this way. If you live in America, you <laughs> pronounce it this way. Anyway, uh, so voiced by the great David Warner. Uh, who is Star Trek royalty, really. I mean, he's been in a lot of iterations of Star Trek. Uh, he was in Star Trek V as uh, <laughs> John Talbot in that very memorable yeah. role. Uh, but he was also Chancellor Gorkin 
in Star Trek Six. You know, a pivotal member of of the of the cast there. And then you know he went on to Deep Space Nine or not Deep Space Nine Next Generation. He was uh, Golma Dread in the epic two-parter Chain of Command. So, uh, but in our purposes here, right? TOS. He was in two TOS movies back to back, right? Which is yeah. this is interesting Very choice. Different parts. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that that's what makes it work because they could not have been more separate. Like John Talbot over here, that's smoking. Federation ambassador on Nimbus three sleaze ball. Yeah, yeah. Just got hitting on the Romulan ambassador and just being a, I don't know. It's very, I don't know what there's a lot about Star Trek five, which is odd. And that was just an odd character, but oh, yeah. uh, that's a whole nother conversation. I, I actually enjoy <laughs> Star Trek five more than most, but there's just so much there. That's just makes you scratch your head. Uh, but then the Very next true. one, he, he is this regal mature kind of ahead of his time figure in Chancellor Gorkin, right? And that is, that is just a great character. And that that same kind of um, elegantness is what he brings to Rachel Ghoul, which is so uh, essential to the character. Rachel Ghoul, to me, people say the Joker, and I agree, like in one category, the Joker is Batman's arch nemesis, but also Rachel Ghoul is right there. And uh, yeah. because he is Batman to the extreme, right? I mean, he he, he, he that's how he relates to Batman, like, Hey, you want to eliminate all crime? Well, here you go. I've met this organization over centuries who's dedicated to that. Join me, and they have like you know a father-son almost relationship and mentor-mentee. And mm-hmm. and anyway, I mean, and again, when you read comic books, I mean, I love Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson is my favorite actor of all time, right? But when I read Ray Shaw Ghoul, mm-hmm. I don't hear Liam Neeson's voice. I hear David Warner's voice. Sure. Well, I mean the the ability for the show to. First of all, the episodes that actually introduce Raish al I mean, they allude to Raish before he shows up, and they do it very effectively. Yeah, they actually plant some seeds, yeah. yeah. Like in Vertigo, is, I think that's the one that, that immediately comes to mm-hmm. mind. But then when... He has a, he has a post-credit scene at the end of yeah, that yeah, exactly, episode exactly. almost, right? What it, what it amounts to. <laughs> but, uh, but when they actually did introduce Raish, first of all, they on the writing front, they did something very effective by actually bringing in Denny O'Neill for the teleplays. Uh, who, you know, wrote the original stories with Ra's al Ghul. So that makes perfect sense. But, um, yeah, again, that casting philosophy is just beautiful. I mean, Star Trek VI is my favorite movie in the entire franchise, and it's due in no small part to uh, the presence of Chancellor Gorkon, because Chancellor Gorkon is sort of a melding of two very different but also similarly aimed historical figures in Gorbachev, and President Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's right there in the name. Gorbachev, Lincoln, Gorkin. And uh, the the regality is is a good point, but the, I think the foresight is is even more important to the, the, the key elements for what makes Chancellor Gorkin who he is, because very much like uh, President Lincoln was trying to take a, a very temperate approach to uh, reconstruction after the Civil War, the, the South shot themselves in the foot, really, by having uh, having Lincoln be assassinated, because things probably would have gone a lot better had Lincoln not been assassinated. And you very much get the same kind of thing in Star Trek VI that sort of melds together this approach of unifying two enemies, like uh, like Lincoln tried to do in the Civil War, but also create a new era for international relations as the fall of the Soviet Union did in in the late 80s, early 90s. So I love Star Trek VI to death, and that's just one reason. But David Warner absolutely brings that tempered approach that really understands, or really demonstrates an understanding, I should say, of the intent of the material and the intent of the character. 
And very much just like that, you hear such belief in his voice when he plays Ra's al Ghul. Uh, he never he never wavers in his delivery of lines because Raish is someone who whatever else you could say about him he is such a strong believer in the the intent of his mission in basically remaking the world with him at the at the forefront of it and Warner brings this almost reassuring quality to the to the vocals for Raish but then when he does occasionally dovetail into the vicious and vindictive you also really hear that and it's bone chilling and that's one of the reasons i love his portrayal of rage yeah and he carries on through superman the image series yep. as well uh and batman the new batman adventures uh, as well so, and batman beyond uh, he, he was a uh, batman beyond. that's right batman beyond these villains they carry on through and th- again that's another uh thread the whole racial goal subplot with talia his daughter and all that like that is one of my favorite threads of the dc animated universe totally. and that and, and and as an aside all, we're all about tangents here on standard over it so <laughs> as an aside i love batman beyond yes i love that it just puts a cap on this entire universe and to me a lot of people say dark knight returns is my batman future no 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 no. for me it's all about batman beyond that that is what i believe is the batman future to me and uh and it was so great that they incorporated into the comic books yeah. you know i mean that's the great thing about batman the animated series you get stuff like Harley Quinn, Batman Beyond, Terry McGinnis, et cetera, et cetera, stuff that became so ingrained in the pop culture and the audience that they incorporate into the source material itself. So applause there. But but that what uh, what's that one called? The, what's the Batman Beyond episode called with Rachel Ghoul? Out of the past. Out of the past. Oh, great twist on that, everybody. So yeah. Don't go no, don't I'm... go look it up on Wikipedia. Just go watch it, and it's it's yeah. a great uh, great great episode there. Um, and David Warner, right? I, I, they're still making these animated movies, right? I would love if they did like one more, like Rachel Ghoul movie. Uh, oh, yeah. David Warner, he's, I don't know, eighty. He's getting up there, right? But yeah. he still, he still goes out in public. He does conventions and whatnot. I, I, want, I want to see the near apocalypse of 09, right? I want to see that. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a deep cut. No I know, but yeah, totally. <laughs> let's see a movie about that. So yeah, his performance here is Rachel Ghoul, excellent every time. But it does intersect with a couple other. Star Trek notables, most notably Nichelle Nichols, uh, the one yeah. original series cast member, main cast member, who did a voice on Batman the Animated Series, and it's the episode Avatar in uh, Batman the Animated Series. Now, I'll have to... <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but she plays a character called Toth Capera. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that particular episode, so I don't know how they pronounce it, talking about race and Ra's and pronunciations. It might have been Kepra, but that's close enough. Close it's, enough, right? Yeah. Raish, Ra's, let's call the whole thing off. So <laughs> the, the, the the objective of this episode is, you know, Raish al Ghul, and we'll conversation with him, we'll continue through these next couple of characters here, but his, his whole premise as a, in the comic books and the animated series uh, is he survives over the centuries by going to these things called Lazarus pits, which if you go, if you immerse yourself in, there's a handful of them around the world. Uh, it's a pool of liquid, green glowing liquid. You immerse yourself in it, you come back out, you're insane for a little bit, but then you get to live for an, an X amount of more years. But the more you use them, the less effective they are, the, the diminishing returns, right? right. Uh, so he's investigating this this new uh, mode of immortality, and he, you know, Classic Egypt, Indiana Jones style stuff. That's another reason this the racial ghost stuff is so great because there's so many great adventure stories and globe trotting. You get to see Batman in situations you usually don't get to see him in when he's dealing with race. And they go to Egypt and they find this tomb and it's this. It's it, it is kind of like a Raiders of the Lost Ark thing actually because you know Rashi opens up this tomb and 
you know, uh, the, the Nichelle Nichols character comes out and she's like this beautiful priestess or whatever. But then she turns into like, does the turn again, Rage of the Lost Ark, angelic form turns into like a demonic form and starts like, you know, killing Raish and sucking his immortality and Batman has to save him and, and whatnot. And, and so it's a, it's a small role, but it's great to hear Nichelle Nichols, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about the, the, the pedigree of the vocal quality of the cast of the original series, then I think you have really three people who immediately come to mind. Leonard Nimoy, George Takei, and Nichelle Nichols. I think um, if you talk about voices with character uh, as the philosophy of the casting for Batman the Animated Series would go, Nichelle Nichols almost immediately comes to the forefront of someone who has a voice with character. There is no one who has the, the same quite kind of vocal quality as she has. So the fact that she was able to come in to, to B-Test for at least one episode makes perfect sense to me. And she, she always seems like she has so much fun uh, when her character is supposed to have fun. But also in this episode, obviously, you know, Kepra isn't really having fun per se. But <laughs> she really kind of went there when it came to trying to emphasize the horror of the moment. And uh, and just as a Star Trek fan, I appreciate the fact that they were able to bring her in as, as effectively as they did, considering it's only one episode. Yeah, and you know, something like that can be really cheesy if it's like, oh, I'm evil now, I'm going to get you. Right. But it wasn't yeah, that way. Exactly. It was like it actually was creepy, scary stuff, mm -hmm. uh, especially for a younger audience. So yeah. uh, so, so good good get on Nichelle Nichols there. And I will add one more name to your list, uh, James Dewitt. Now, I will, I will put him in the category of voices that can create character. More yeah, so absolutely. than voices with character, because he's kind of a blank slate, but he could meld his voice into so many ways, like Star Trek the Animated Series. Oh, how many had, voices They had him playing three or four people per episode, right? <laughs> Half the guest star males were, were him, and he was Mr. Eric's. And, yep. uh, anyway, uh, the Guardian of Forever, I think he was on the Animated Series as well. So uh, he, he had one of those voices where, where he, he can do what you need him to do. And then you guys like Nimoy and, and Takei, they, they narrated a lot of great Star Trek audiobooks in the 80s, mm -hmm. and uh, Dewan did as well. So uh, yeah, the great call out on on, the, on their voices. So and and Takei um, was in the the first two episodes of Batman Beyond, so that's right. He, he killed Terminator's dad. Yeah. So exactly. I thought that completely slipped my mind. I was just looking at good call. That's why see Chris, man, encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of the animated universe. No, that, that completely slipped my mind because I was just kind of focused on the Batman the animated series. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's good good call there. So another character that intersected with uh, Rachel Ghoul on Batman the Animated Series was Arcady Duvall in the episode Showdown, and he was voiced by Malcolm McDowell. Dr. Tolly and Soren, he killed Captain Kirk, we all know who he is. Generations is kind of a crossover, so I'm counting his TOS. Um, so, uh, he, he's Rachel Ghoul's son, but it's in the Old West, and he, we have a crossover with the comic book character Jonah Hex, made famous by the 2011 movie starring Josh Brolin. <laughs> Are you sure about that, though? Are you sure that that was what made him famous? <laughs> that, you know, I, I'll, I'll say this. A lot of people have a lot of, like, this is the worst comic movie ever made. I kind of lean towards Jonah Hex maybe being the worst. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah. Those were dark it's, times for DC. So they they were they were they they were still trying to find themselves a little bit. Right. I think. But hey, everybody, look. Uh, Michael Fassbender went on to be a great Magneto. Josh Bullen went on to be Cable and Thanos. So you know, everything yep. everybody came out okay in the wash. So, uh, but yep. anyway, this episode of Batman the Image series. That's the great thing about Rachel Gould. These are the stories you can tell with that character because mm -hmm. he goes across the centuries. So we have a you know, uh, there's a little mystery in modern day Gotham City, and, and Batman has to 
figure out why this Rachel Rule has kidnapped this guy from an old folks' home, and it is his son. And Batman, they kind of that's the thing about Rache and Batman too. They have this this respect for each other. Well, uh, because Rache kidnaps this guy and he's gonna go, and Batman like thinks about stopping him, but then he just walks off and let him have his last few days with his son. Uh, mm-hmm. Rachel's with his son. And I thought that that kind of speaks a lot to their character as well. So Malcolm McDowell, not a huge role here, but again bringing character to voices, right? Uh, he goes on to play Metallo in Superman the Animated Series as well, which is which is brilliant. His performance there, again, going from, much like Mac Lansara, going from a normal voice, shifting to a mechanical, emotionless voice. Uh, Michael, Ma- Malcolm McDowell, just a great actor all around, but especially as a voice actor, uh, bang-up job in all these roles. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I love the Arcady Duval episode of, of the animated series because of the legacy that it represents. I mean, that's one of the things that... I really sincerely hope that the D, the the DC films going forward are able to emphasize in some form or fashion is the idea of history that goes backward as well as you know possibilities of the future. Uh, Jonah Hex and the Legion of Superheroes I think represent those two extremes, um, and the Justice Society of course a little bit on, mm-hmm. on the the. Well, they're the doing they're doing that on TV. The movie's not so much, but on TV they're they're doing a good job of that. Yeah. I don't know. I think I actually wrote a column about this. At <laughs> They're doing a job of that. Maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, legacy legacy is something that I think that, that the DC EU or what used to be the DC EU is kind of missing. Uh, you know, I think that introducing the idea of Jay Garrick into the, the, the mentality of Ezra Miller's flash would be a really cool idea and give it a little more focus, but that's, that's a whole other tangent. Um, the whole something totally different um but with this i love that episode because of the sense of history that it provides to the world while also connecting to another beloved dc character whose place is primarily in the past uh but also just the the pedigree of performances by having both david warner and malcolm mcdowell in addition to members of the regular cast of the animated series all in one episode it's a great thing to watch and mcdowell again a voice with character who would bring a wonderful philosophy to portraying one of Superman's most identifiable and popular villains. At least, you know, you got to scale that because Superman's rogues gallery doesn't seem to have a whole lot of public recognition, but Metallo is absolutely in the upper echelon of Superman villains. So the fact that they did kind of bring him in on a regular basis Kind of like they did with Dana Delaney, who showed up, you know, in Mask of the Phantasm, and then they actually cast her as Lois Lane. Uh, Malcolm McDowell was able to, to similarly break through in not a regular role, but a more regular one. And it's hard to choose someone better with a voice that sounds like that. You know, that's a great point, you know, and to make a Star Trek analogy, again, like, it's like, you know, you had a lot of guest stars on Next Generation that ended up becoming regulars down the road. You know, mm-hmm. of uh, you know, you had Tim Ross pop up. You had uh, Michelle Forbes showed up as, as an alien before she became Ensign Row. Robert Duncan McNeil. Robert Duncan McNeil. In my head, Canon Tom Paris is Nick Lacarno. Mine too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the same thing. And because the, these are these are just d- d- families and stories and, and organizations and whatnot. I, I like talk about legacy in the fiction, legacy in the in the real world too. With these franchises, is great to see as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, can't agree more with you on that. Another one here, Leslie Tompkins, right? She is a, yes. a character, again, um, well, what? okay. What are your thoughts on Gotham, real quick? Do you like Gotham? 
Not particularly, no. Good. I don't. I don't um, either. So we'll just we'll okay, just leave it at right, that. Good. But anyway, right. <laughs> that is the only uh, mainstream interpretation of Leslie Tompkins, at least in the live action, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, she's in the comic books and Batman the Animated Series, as it was with many characters, was the was the first uh, version of Batman to bring her into uh, from out bring her out from outside the comic books into another medium. And mm-hmm. uh, she played. She's in a few episodes. Uh, Appointment of Crime Alley is probably the most memorable one, at least for me, that she yeah. he's featured in. And uh, she is, I, I guess the best way to say is she, she's a social worker that helped Bruce Wayne out uh, after his parents were murdered and had, has played a role in his life ever since. So she's kind of like, a, she's not Alfred level, but she's kind of, she plays that kind of role to a lesser degree and she knows his identity and whatnot. Yeah. So she is voiced by Diana Moldar. And you're saying, wait, Diana Moldar, that's Dr. Pulaski, that's Next Generation. No, 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 no. Well, yes, but she was on TOS <laughs> first. She was True. in two episodes of the original series. She was in Return to Tomorrow in season two and is in Their Truth, No Beauty in season three. Um, and then, you know, she became friends with Gene Roddenberry, and that's what he brought her into Next Generation down the road. And, uh, I th- again, a voice with character. I think she, she's, like oh, a, right. she's like a TV Angela Lansbury, I'd say. Although, of course, Ooh, Angela Lansbury yeah. is famous for TV as well. But I kind of equate the two. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean... The fact that she was able to bring this sort of reassuring quality to a character who was introduced into Bruce Wayne's life for the perp- for the sole purpose of reassuring him that everything would be okay is a wonderful idea. Uh, she, as Leslie Tompkins, brings uh, a, a real elegance to... An, an elegance, but also like a reasonable opposition to what Bruce has chosen to do with his life. Uh you know, because she is she she's a presence. She's a very motherly presence for him as a young man and someone that Bruce would also come to rely upon uh, in into adulthood. And I love how their relationship is defined in the animated series. I mean, it's very much extended from their dynamic in the comics, at least, you know, pre-war games, which screwed it up a little too much from my estimation. But uh Leslie Tompkins' place in Bruce Wayne's life is a very important one. And having someone of her vocal quality bring that character to life, it's a wonderful casting choice. I mean, it just goes back to what we've been saying over the course of this entire discussion. The casting choices of Batman the Animated Series did an impeccable job of becoming definitive portrayals of those characters. And uh, and I think even though it's relatively lower level compared with some of the other characters we've talked about, Leslie Tompkins is very, very emblematic of that. We have um, Malachi Throne from the original series. Now, now he, uh, he played Commodore Mendez in the menagerie part one and two, Mm -hmm. or at least part one. He did part two. He was an illusion. I love that episode, but that is kind of a weak. uh... (laughs) Oh, he was, he was (laughs) never really here, Uh, but he was also the voice of the head Talosian in the cage, the original version uh, of the cage, and they changed the voice pitches a, a bit when they cast him as, as Commodore Mendez in the same episode, et cetera, et cetera. But way b- Star Trek cred, all the way back to the 60s, uh, that he carried on to Next Generation. He was Senator Pardek in Unification, the two-parter with Leonard Nimoy as Spock. And, um, and then he's actually been in a, a Star Trek fan film, at least one. He was in, like, New Voyages. So, so he kind of kept with, uh, with, with the fandom and whatnot over the years. But he played the judge in uh, Batman episode Judgment Day. And I'm just going to go ahead and give this away because I want your opinion on, <laughs> on this. Yeah, sure. But, go uh, for it. So, so Two-Face, right? Everybody knows there's Two-Face and Harvey Dent. He's a split personality, and that, that drives his, his – that's his modus operandi, right? 
Um, but he's an Arkham, and there's a mysterious new character called the Judge, and voiced not by Richard Mole, who did the voice of Two Face, Harvey Dent, but voiced by Malachi Throne. But the twist at the end is this is a third personality that is manifested in Two Face. Uh, he's even trying to kill Two Face, so it's 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 very it's I I th- I thought that it was a very effective little thread they they spun there. And I, I don't know though. What what do you think about Two Face developing a third personality? Does that ruin the whole Two Face shtick for you? Or well, it's it's very unique. You can't <laughs> say that it's not unique. Um, it, it, I don't think it ruins it. Uh, just because the let's say the malleability of Two Face's sanity is such that I could see this as a one-off. I can't see it as a permanent fixture going for. Like if they decided to introduce this idea in the ongoing fabric of Two-Face in the comics. I don't think I'd be that thrilled about it. But um, as a single 22-minute story in isolation, I actually really like that. It's actually probably one of the better episodes of the new Batman Adventures overall. Uh, I mean, you have the the, the highs of Over the Edge, right? And and the lows of Little Critters. And... uh, (laughs) You know, is that so, was it Farmer it, Farmer Joe or far, yeah mm-hmm, exactly oh terrible so so what we're talking just yeah. for some context guys I don't know if you guys aren't that familiar with that in the animated series it's really weird how they divide it all up like on the DVDs for example like there's like four volumes but in layman's terms there's four volumes of Batman the animated series the first three are pretty much the same season they added Robin and they changed the name to the Adventures of Batman and Robin but that's still the mm-hmm. same animation style same voice cast same yes. creative direction. Uh, then there was a bit of a break, and they made Superman the Animated Series, and they crossed Batman over, and that was so successful, they revived Batman the Animated Series, called it the New Batman Adventures. Changed all the animation. Most of the voice talent was the same, but the story quality was just... It's kind of like a third season of TOS. Yeah, Man, I'm so proud of myself finding all these parallels. <laughs> um, it's kind of like that, right? The title... They were not yellow anymore. The titles are blue. What? Why are they supposed to be yellow, right? So there wasn't the, the, the Batman the Animated Series all these amazing title cards, right? For the first eighty episodes, of, you know that that iteration of the show, gone. Those are gone. Now it's just white text over, you know, the the animation, which is fine. But there was again, the, the, there was something just special about that first run of Batman the Animated Series that you lost some of that. And there are some great episodes you mentioned over the edge. Um, no spoilers here, but that's one of the best episodes of anything animated, and I recommend yeah. people watch that. But so you have the highs of that. Had Jeffrey Combs of the Scarecrow, by the way. He was like the third mm-hmm. guy to voice the Scarecrow. <laughs> yeah. the way, way and you, the best, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you have those. You have Legends of the Dark Knight and whatnot. But then you had a lot of questionable episodes. So you you have your Tholian webs, right, and your Enterprise incidents, and then you have the rest. So that's kind of like mm-hmm. the fourth season, the fourth <laughs> live Batman the Animated Series. I will say, though, and again, we love stand, we love tangents here on Standard Orbit. Um, I like the Batman redesign. Yes. I like the Batgirl redesign. Mm-hmm. I like the Penguin redesign because they, they yeah, un-Danny DeVito'd him. You know, they made right. him more, uh, you know, the Batman Returns influence was long gone by then. And then I, I think, I, and I like the Scarecrow redesign. Yeah. Uh, other than that, it was either a wash or a step back. Like Catwoman, bad, bad redesign. Uh, the Joker, bad redesign. Why does Got he have black eyes now? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was straight. But then, you know, they kind of, by the time you saw him in um, in Batman Beyond Return of the Joker and in Justice League, mm, they, they come back si- around. They sort of melded the, mm-hmm. the TNBA and B-TAS designs together mm-hmm. to make something that was probably even better than the original. 
Listen, that T and B A and B TAS. That's right. This is a hardcore fan here. The same, oh, the totally. same way we ch- we say T O S D S nine T N G. We got T B and A, and that's great, man. I love it. Um, but yeah, you know, t- so to to tie around to, uh, we went on a little uh, trail there, but that that's what's so interesting to me about Malachi Throne is he was a voice actor on the original series. He was the voice yes. of the Keeper Talosian in the first episode, the first pilot, and then you know he appeared in the Flash on the show itself. And then he went back to voice acting for Batman the Animated Series. So I love that. Love that. And, and you're right. I agree that as a one-off, like Harvey had some kind of mental lapse and had a third personality to help cope. And that can go away. And it just, when, Two-Face, the shtick can get old if you're not careful with it. Uh, right. And that's a nice, because nothing, they never really recaptured the heights of the first Two-Face two-parter, I think. But this was a nice new angle on the character for the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they tried to go with sort of a mind-bending direction with him a couple of times. Uh the the other one that comes to mind is when he's trying to kill himself. Uh, oh yeah, but that that episode is like half flashbacks. <laughs> That's like yeah, exactly. the shades yeah, of gray so of the series. Kind of a clip show <laughs> yeah. slash yeah new episode. Yeah, it's not exi- It's it's better than shades of gray, but uh, you know it's it's not a mind blowing uh, example of BTS's quality. But uh, no, I mean the the fact that they were able to get. Because, I mean, if anything, Malachi Throne has this uh, this very bassy kind of vocal quality mm. to him. And the the role that they cast him in was very appropriate. So it's just, again, it shows the, the effectiveness of the philosophy in voice casting this show. And uh, Star Trek has had such great examples of voices with character that it's hard to imagine them not going to that well at some point and they did obviously multiple times as we've talked about which makes perfect sense and malachi throne played false face on batman 66 oh my god you're right just blew your mind (laughs) that's awesome yeah i I, oh that totally that totally spaced my mind oh that's that's great that's a great callback and obviously you know those two shows were running not in direct succession but pretty close to it Mm-hmm. So I want to yeah, do I want to do an episode. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll have you back on for this, Chris. But I want to do an episode sometime with like talking about the the, the crossover between those two shows. Oh, uh, that would you be got great. Your, I'm, it's a, I, it's I, it's a shorter list to be honest. So I'm yes. not even going to spoil anything right now because we'll but talk about the whole I, thing by accident. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but okay. I could probably spend an entire episode talking about let that be your last battlefield. So that's oh, perfect. Okay. Well, I'll put it on the schedule, man. So there you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just a couple more left. This honestly, uh, this spot here. It's probably the the most inconsequential of them all. But William Winden, uh, who played Commodore Decker and Doomsday Machine, one of the most memorable guest stars and one of the most memorable episodes. It's pretty much on everybody's top ten list. I believe James Doohan said this was his favorite episode of the Doomsday Machine. Uh, he was in um, the episode with Nostradamus. Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me see. I, I had it in my notes. Oh, oh, Prophecy of Doom. Here it is. Prophecy yes. of Doom. And uh, he played uh, Bruce Wayne's friend Ethan, and um, who a guy that kind of got swindled by this uh, fake psychic guy, basically. Not not one of the BTAS's greatest episodes, um, <laughs> and kind of a, just a. An unmem- uh, here's the deal, right? Not a, not a memorable villain in this episode. William Wynn didn't even play one of the villains; he just played like Bruce Wayne's socialite friend. Uh, and then just a run-of-the-mill kind of... There's, a, you know, just 
like like Star Trek itself, there's a handful of Batman the Animated Series episodes that are just forgettable and blah, and this is one of them. And I really don't have much to say about this one, but just to include everybody who had been on TOS, that's why it's on the list. So. Yep. Yeah, I don't really have much to add either. Uh, it was a, it was a relatively forgettable part. You know, it was just kind of a kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A spacey rich guy. That's basically what he was, and mm. uh, he needed Batman to save him. And I think Heather Locklear guested in that episode too as his daughter, which oh, is kind of interesting. I think you're right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it it certainly doesn't break into the most memorable episodes of this rather stellar series. But no. it's hey, it's just uh, another another point of uh, comparison between two franchises that we obviously love. If you want to see Batman fight someone in a giant um, planetarium with planets flying around, then this <laughs> this is the episode for you. So it's very Gardner Fox, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Moving on to the movies now. Um, Star Trek Two, Wrath of Khan, Captain Terrell, great character, great supporting character. Paul Winfield, right? Again, Star Trek goes back to Paul Winfield for Next Generation and Darmok. He played. He didn't play Darmok. All right, he played Dathan. All right, there's yes. a difference. Okay, <laughs> it's, just like, hey, it's, it's Darmok. No, it's not Darmok. It's Dathan. Anyway, so anyway, Paul Winfield, he played uh, Earl Cooper, the guy who designed the Batmobile in Batman oh, the Animated Series. So what, what are your thoughts on this episode, The Mechanic? I, it's one of my favorites. I, I love the, first of all, you know, we didn't, we never really got to see over the course of Batman the Animated Series much of the early history of Batman himself. There's a few times where it goes back and we see sort of the early days before he had the yellow oval on the costume. Uh, Robin's Reckoning is the one that immediately comes to mind is probably mm-hmm. the most robust look at early Batman. But uh, no, the giving such context to an element of Batman that is so inextricably tied to him in the car is a great idea for an episode. And... I'm certainly not aware of a story in the comics, at least not one that immediately comes to mind, that goes out of its way to explain the quote-unquote secret origin of the Batmobile to this extent. Uh, There are a lot of questions, especially by the time you got to the 1990s, about, wait a second, how is he able to design a car like this by himself? Uh, How is he able to, to create something this powerful and this technologically proficient uh, as arguably the prime weapon in his arsenal. And this episode explains he didn't. You know, he got someone who passed the uh, the ethical muster while also demonstrating the, the aptitude for designing a vehicle. And he employed him and took good care of him. And uh, it makes sense that if that is anywhere close to being compromised that a supervillain would go for that guy. So there's a lot to love about the mechanic. I actually really, really love, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite episodes. It's, I don't know if it's necessarily an objective best episode, but just as far as personal favorites are concerned that I return to more often than several others. I love this episode a lot. It's one of the better penguin episodes. Oh yeah, definitely. Which I, I I forgot to say this when we're talking about Leslie Tompkins. My least, probably my least favorite episode of Batman the Animated Series is Blind as a Bat, because really? 
I don't. I I, th- I think I, I think I know why though, because like you know before DVDs, right, and before mm-hmm. you know access to all these things on streaming media, you were at the mercy of what you know, KWB or Fox Kids decided to show that weekend. And I swear, man, there was there was like a month in a row where every Saturday, maybe it was like the local affiliate or what, they showed Blind as a Bat from Batman the Animated Series and Prototype from Superman in the Animated Series, like back to back. And the new Batman <laughs> Superman Adventures. I'm like, I am sick of this episode. These stupid kids, you know. Or, or, are there kids in Blind as a Bat? Or is that I got uh, Batman in my basement? No, I'm you're thinking of I've got Batman in my basement. Yeah, I'm combining all the bad Penguin episodes. That's the thing. Like the Penguin, <laughs> he had a lot of. My point here, because he's in this episode, and this is a good Penguin episode. Um, Birds of the Feather is a good Penguin episode. This mm-hmm. is a good Penguin episode. But there's so many other ones that were like, I don't know. Like just put the Penguin in there. Like he's like the well, like the fill in villain so another another trek connection too because paul williams guested on voyager ah there he is he was he was on voyager yeah i yeah. thought paul williams was, what what was he in what, what episode was he in it was the episode i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but it was the one where the doctor became a music star oh yeah the plan and they copy they his hologram yeah exactly yeah <laughs> that's great that they got paul williams i totally forgot about yeah. that <laughs> so just a couple left we'll, we'll we'll save uh this this next one uh, is Star Trek Five, and then we'll jump back to Star Trek Four and Six after this. But Star Trek Five, George Murdoch, quote unquote God. What does God need with the starship? God, yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> he's also in Next Generation as Admiral Hansen, uh, Picard's old friend who gets uh, killed at yes. Wolf Three Five Nine. But um, he is in uh, the Forgotten, which is the episode where Bruce Wayne gets amnesia. You know. Uh, everybody's got to have an episode where the main character gets amnesia and forgets who he is, right? That's part of the genre fiction. Everybody does it. It's fine. Um, but he's under... The, the cool thing about this episode is he's he's under disguise as Matches Malone. Uh, he's Matches Malone in this, right? Because yeah. I know... Or is he? I think he... He's under disguise. Sometimes he's Matches Malone, yes, sometimes absolutely. he's not. Uh so he, you know, Bruce Wayne, he gets knocked out, dragged under this like work camp, makes some friends with other people, and there's like this this gross fat guy who's always eating a, a chicken wing the whole time. Yeah. Chicken wing. Oh yeah, no, no, no. He's he's not matches Malone specifically, mm. uh, but y- yeah, he is under disguise. I mean the the but God the chicken. Wing. <laughs> Oh, man. I, I I wonder if George Murdoch was in the booth, literally eating a chicken wing. If not, he's just a great job. Back to work, y'all. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's just so good. Really good job. Uh, he's got like this gravelly, like like rough voice, and it, it fits perfectly for this like despicable character. And who gets you know he gets his comeuppance yeah. in the end because eventually Batman Bruce Wayne remembers that he's Batman. And, you know, saves the day. And and actually, this episode really reminded me of uh, uh, to cross the stream some more because we're all about that. The Deep Space Nine episode Paradise, where they go stick Cisco in the the, the punishment box. That that that's the same thing in this episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's a thing in the real world, but as like a six year old yeah. watching this, <laughs> that's the connect. Oh, that's the thing from Star Trek. It's the same thing. So uh, that <laughs> reminded me of that as well. But this is a it's a pretty good episode. The, the, it's always tricky, you know, when they do these. I don't know who I am. Like you know, the, the Hollywood version of amnesia. Right. But I felt like this was a good version. He, he oh wait, I almost had it. Gaff, Gaff, Gaff oh. Morgan. That's All who right. Bruce Wayne there was it disguised is. as. We got Gaff it. Morgan. So it was it was an it was another identity that he had established to try and find out exactly what was happening in the factory. But no, I mean. Uh, I, I actually have a fair amount of affection for this episode, not really for most of its content per se, but, mm. uh, but what happens at the end of it, you know, because mm. one of the strengths of Batman's position 
uh, in his private life as Bruce Wayne is that, uh, you know, and a lot of people look past the, um, the ability for Bruce Wayne to affect Gotham City as a philanthropist and just focus on what he does as Batman. But Batman himself focuses a significant portion of what he can do to help the city through the means of his name and his family. And uh, this kind of emphasizes that, you know, this this and uh, and old wounds mm. both kind of emphasize the idea of how Bruce Wayne can actually help people with a smile on his face when he's not being Batman. Old wounds probably does it a little bit more effectively than this one. But the idea that it pushes forward of him actually being able to step up and help some people who are down on their luck by giving them a job is is nice and yeah i mean i don't really have anything uh profound to add about boss biggest other than uh is just a, it was an effective way to portray a, a huge slime ball very memorable so that's really all yeah that's all the episode needed though too you know i mean it didn't need this complicated nuanced protagonist just had this slime ball of a of, of kind of a slave driver and, and I like the the original, ver, you know, the, the original run of Batman the Animated Series. They had episodes like this where it was just guys, you know, just like bad criminals, yeah. whatnot, you know. I feel like if this was in, like, the Batman, uh, the new Batman Adventures, they would have, like, oh, the the penguins running this underground scheme. Like, <laughs> this grounds it better at just some gross person. Like, it's a very realistic episode of, of oh, Batman sure. the Animated Series. Well, so. at least up to the point where before Alfred gets behind the stick of the Batwing. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but I like that. I yeah. think that that's great. I like that too. Yeah. I like Alfred, uh, kind of the, uh, kind of like in the Batman v Superman Justice League Alfred, you know, like remote mm-hmm. control flying stuff. When I like, I like that hands-on kind of Alfred, you know, especially yeah, when sure. he's yeah. mixing the CD in the Batcave, right? <laughs> <laughs> Classic. So, last one here, Brock Peters, right? Oh man, prolific actor. This man was in Barry. Kill a Mockingbird. You know, this is this guy is 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 legit, and he was in Star Trek four and six as Admiral Cartwright, and then also in Batman the Animated Series as Lucius Fox, made famous yes. again in the Nolan trilogy by Morgan Freeman. That's a character that again people, if they're not tuned into Batman the Animated Series or the comics, like who's Lucius Fox? This guy Q? Does they rip off James Bond? No, this is a character from the comic books. Okay, he's in mm-hmm. Batman the Animated Series in the comics, and uh, he he's in a lot of episodes, playing a lot of roles, basically running. Wayne Enterprises, the business mind behind it. Um, and Bruce Wayne's like, hey, I'm just a playboy, duh, 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 you know. Uh, Lucius Fox is the guy that goes to the meetings and, and whatnot. And I like, again, like Leslie Thompson, this character um, like kind of fleshes out his world as, as Bruce Wayne, yeah. you know. Because as Batman, we all know we got Robin, we got whatever, right? But as Bruce Wayne, you're like, what does this guy do, right? Does he sit, like like the Tim Burton movies, he just sit at home in his giant empty room and read a book and wait to be Batman? <laughs> you know, there's, there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, I like... The supporting cast for Bruce Wayne and Brock Peters. What a voice! This is the guy when they did the Star the Star Wars radio dramas, which I highly recommend to everyone. If you never heard them, they, uh, James Earl Jones, uh, you know, wasn't available or they couldn't get him for that. So they got Brock Peters to be Darth Vader, right? This is you know, so this is the voice of Darth Vader. It's cool. So uh, I love Brock Peters across the board. But I, again, like we've been talking about this whole time, voices with character, and he certainly has it here as Lucius Fox. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean. I have a lot of respect for Brock Peters in general. I mean, not just because of the fact that I love his involvement in the Star Trek franchise, but the the caliber of person that he was, especially as a performer, is uh, it, it really comes through. I mean, you hear the stories 
first of all, his portrayal is Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, that's one of my all-time favorite novels and films. So the the fact that uh, you know that he was the performer that gave that character life is is a great um, aspect of his filmography. But also, too, I mean, you uh, and I'm sure as a Star Trek fan, you've heard the stories just as much as I have. When they uh, were shooting the initial meeting of oh, and, the, and Star Trek uh, Six, right? Talking about Star the Trek Six yes. of the Admiralty, yeah. And he was very uncomfortable with the lines that he had to speak as Admiral Cartwright equating Klingons to the trash, the alien trash of the galaxy, mm-hmm. because he saw the parallels there. He saw the parallels of dehumanization that can come from very earthly ideals of racism, which, again, is a form of dehumanization. And it goes back to this sort of shared experience that he was conscious of, that he wasn't sure he wanted to represent. But he he said the lines, uh, and I think that he recognized the value that the that having this um, sort of human supremacist attitude infecting the upper echelon of, of Starfleet Command would bring to the overall story. Mm-hmm. But he was conscious of it. He didn't just say the lines that he was given. He had to mull them over. He, had, he thought of the consequences of saying something like this, especially as a person of color who is pretty emblematic of the the strides that they they made in Hollywood. And uh, I, I don't know how you couldn't respect him for understanding the, the uh, implications of the words that he was given to speak. So, and again, you know, the, the further Star Trek connection, he played uh, Ben Sisko's dad in mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine, did a beautiful job in multiple episodes. In Joseph Sisko, yeah. Joseph Sisko, which which yeah, which so. I uh, there is an episode I believe I think going, running through my Star Trek encyclopedia in my brain here is it the um, the one with Doctor Mora and Odo and gosh I can't remember the title of it right now the the no no the abandoned is is the Jim Hadar uh, gosh well oh the, yeah the, the, oh the alternate the alternate the right? alternate so odo's talking yeah. about how he's you know have problems with dr mora and cisco basically kind of tells him well you know my father was sick at the end is it, is it, am i thinking of the right episode cisco basically has so. a heart to heart with odo and basically implying that his dad had passed away i think that's the one yes yeah yeah but it was before we had seen joseph yeah. cisco and, yes, and they, it was did, like just vague enough where they're like, yeah. well, we didn't flat out say he died, so we can get Brock Peters in to play his dad, so let's do it. So that's a, that's a retcon in Star Trek I'm totally cool with, but it's just one of those little nuggets. Oh, yeah. You're like, wait, I thought you guys said that he, you know. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but no, that's a great, yeah, because in Paradise Lost and, and Homefront and uh, even in you know season seven, like Brock Peters what was a great presence in those later seasons of Deep Space Nine. And Avery Brooks and Brock Peters together, oh, amazing stuff. So. Oh, no, I mean, it was it was a wonderful duo. And they played off of each other so well, even though, you know, very different performing styles from mm-hmm. both of them. But uh, but st- still very effective. You, you could feel I mean, really, that's one of the strengths of Deep Space Nine overall is uh, the camaraderie of the Cisco family, whether it's between uh, Ben and Jake at first and then bringing Joseph into the mix. I mean, it's hard not to see the Cisco's as sort of this ideal example of what a family is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And having that as a through line through the relatively darker subject matter that Deep Space Nine would go on to explore is great. It's one of the reasons I love that show so much. But again, you know, it's Brock Peters who mm-hmm. is an important building block for that. 
and his portrayal of Admiral Cartwright, uh, you know, in Star Trek four, they didn't give him as much to do, obviously, but the, the weight that he brought to it in Star Trek six in adding to this sort of xenophobic idea and, uh, you know, this architect of a conspiracy to go with the conception of, you know, peace is scary. War is actually not as scary as peace is. So let's keep the, uh, the antagonism going. We almost didn't get him for Star Trek at all. Because originally in Star Trek IV, uh, Robert Hook's Starfleet Admiral or Command Starfleet or whatever his character's name was, uh, the guy that tells Kirk, you know, you can't have the Enterprise, you can't go to Genesis in Star Trek Three. He was supposed to return and be that right. same role in Star Trek Four, like to create some continuity. Ooh. And I'm not sure if it was like a scheduling thing or what, but the, the, he wasn't available for whatever reason. And they got Brock Peters, who was just, you know, a blink and you miss him kind of thing in Star Trek Four. Like, again, he didn't really have any shades to his character. But then Star Trek Six, he has a crazy mm-hmm. amount of shades to his character. And uh, just, to, just to think about it, and, you know, Robert Hooks, he could have done okay, but to have someone of Brock Peters' caliber to, to portray all the things you're discussing here, bringing, bringing his history personally and professionally into these roles just is in, incalculable, the value. Oh, yeah. And, and it goes to, you know, there's this sort of competing idea between, like, the... And I actually brought this up. Discovery Debrief had uh, Dayton Ward, uh, who's an author of several mm-hmm. Star Trek books, including... Um, the, a, a discovery novel that was really good that came out earlier this year. And uh, we were talking about the sort of conception of Starfleet as a military organization. You have the Roddenberry camp on one side where they're not really a military organization at all. And then you have the Nicholas Meyer camp on the other side where, you know, the militarism is far more uh, embellished uh, in, in both Star Trek two and in Star Trek six. And, the idea of having sort of a more hawkish uh, perspective within the actual com- upper echelon of the command structure in Starfleet makes a lot of sense, especially considering the uh, the ideas that Star Trek Six was attempting to play with. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought before seeing Star Trek Six that Brock Peters would have been the the guy to sort of push that forward. And you know he's one <laughs> player in the in the larger conspiracy. But uh, it's it's that caliber of of a performer that does a really really effective job of uh, of portraying that sort of more fear fueled militaristic perspective of what peace could bring, and uh, it's one of the reasons that that's my favorite Star Trek movie. And just to wrap it all together, if I had to pick a favorite Lucius Fox episode, I mean, there was never really a Lucius Fox episode. He was pretty much a supporting player the whole time. Right, yeah. I'd probably say Feet of Clay, you know, because the whole, like, he thinks Bruce Wayne tried to kill him, and then when he comes to see him in the hospital and freaks out, like, that was a very effective scene, and and I guess that's my favorite, you know, moment, if you will, with Lucius Fox, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Did he play Lucius in Double Talk? Um, Um, Is that New Batman Adventures? Yeah. No, with no, the no. return of Scarface. I was, I was, you know, did some research for this conversation. They recast him. They recast Lucius yeah. Fox for the new Batman Adventures. I'm not sure why, but that's one of the one of the few voices that, that changed over. Uh, yeah, it's very strange. They shouldn't have done that. No, <laughs> no they shouldn't. <laughs> so, oh, hey, epic conversation, man. I really enjoyed it. This, this, it's, it's, it's funny oh, to, yeah. to delve into all these angles and how our, you know, two these two fandoms we love so much intersect. And uh, we'll definitely have it back on and talk some more Batman connections down the road because I really enjoyed this. 
That'd be great. I, I've, I've loved it. Again, thank you. Much appreciated. So if people want to find you, Chris, I know you've mentioned your podcast a couple of times, but, you know, Twitter, Facebook, you know, where can people find you on the internet if they want to hear more of your opinions and all this great nerd conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at Chris Clow, C-H-R-I-S-C-L-O-W. I got in early enough that I was able to get <laughs> your own beyond <laughs> the other Chris Clows. Yeah, exactly. So that was helpful. Um, and then we also have a Twitter feed for Discovery Debrief, which is just at DSC Debrief. Uh, we're right now we're in the middle of recording episodes that each of our panelists are choosing a favorite in the entire 731 episode history of Star Trek. We're oh. choosing a, our favorite to talk about, uh, we across all the shows across every show. And, wow. um, that's tough, man. <laughs> it's very tough. Mine was the city on the edge of forever. That was the first discussion that we had. Okay. And I'm actually in the middle of editing the second one right now, which is uh, my wife's, who's a panelist on Discovery Debrief, Rachel. Her choice was Tapestry for the next generation. Oh, okay. Great, yeah. great choice as well. Yeah, but, but every one of our panelists chose an episode from a different show. So going forward, we should have a pretty, uh, pretty diverse set of Star Trek conversations about... Uh, everything that makes them our favorites so that should be that should be fun uh, the next one that we're going to do after tapestry i think i can say it without much consequence is going to be the visitor <laughs> from deep space nine oh, okay. and all these are all good you oh, cannot go wrong with any of these picks yeah we're, we're not we're not exactly going for hidden gems we're going for the ones that just resonate the most with us so i think that this that's... is an interesting point though right are not all the best and most highly regarded favorite episodes of star trek involve time travel in some way you know, it's it's an interesting question. Um, Time trek. It se- yeah. it seems like it. I mean, I'm trying to remember the last one that I mean, we're doing. Star Trek Four. Everybody loves Star Trek Four. Yeah. First Contact. Everybody says that's the best next gen movie. I would agree. Mm-hmm. You get you know all good things in TNG. People have that tapestry. You yep. know, uh, TNG. Yesterday's Enterprise. That's my favorite. Like if you said pick one, I would pick yesterday's. That's Enterprise. a great episode. Yeah. So time travel. There you mm-hmm. got City on the Edge of Forever. Obviously, an all time great. Yeah. Time travel. Uh, tapestry kind of time travel on you know in Q fantasy but nonetheless mm-hmm. time travel or is it you is it that's that, actually part of the conversation <laughs> good, yeah good I look forward to yeah. hearing that good um the, the visitor yeah East Space Nine right all the best Voyager episodes you know you got uh timeless probably my favorite or Living Witness and that's not really time travel but it is like a historian thing so perspective of time and what year of hell uh year of hell you know um. Enterprise, you got, I mean, you, so many of those episodes are a lot. Um, God, titles, Twilight. Oh, Love yeah. Twilight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's time travel there. Um, and then I guess on Discovery, it's really just magic to make the sanest man go mad. That would be the only time travel. Yeah, and it's only uh, really dealing with hours and, and minutes. It's very localized yeah, time yeah, travel. Yeah, exactly. You know, ca- cause and effect from TNG. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the list goes on. So, I mean, I, that's, that's just another trek thread i have in my head where it's like i I love star trek and i always complain about time travel again but they always do it so well so it's hard to complain and they kind of when it comes to like big time pop culture science fiction uh you know star wars is more fantasy than science fiction anyway but star trek does like there are no time travel star wars stories so Mm. you know star Trek. well have you watched rebels well, <laughs> yeah. okay, all right, fair enough. But they <laughs> that's, don't. That's fresh. The, the, that's brand new. Right, right, right. Yeah, the franchise does not deal with it very often. But mm-hmm. when Star Trek deals with it, and when they have the the appropriate talent to tell those stories, then it kind of has a, a command of the concept of time travel. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely one of the things that uh, that I appreciate about it. But as far as other places, yeah. um, I have. So 
another recent episode of Discovery Debrief was in, kind of inspired by another podcast that I do called Comics on Consoles, which examines the intersection between uh, comic book characters and video games. And we actually had a Discovery Debrief episode that dealt with Star Trek and gaming recently that I went solo for. Uh, so that was fun. But yeah, Comics on Consoles, I'm, I'm working on the 11th episode of that show, which is going to deal with the 2000 Spider-Man game developed by Neversoft that was released on the PS1, the Nintendo 64, and the Sega Dreamcast. So that should be a lot of fun. And other than that, I occasionally appear on the Batman on Film podcast talking about the Dark Knight himself. And uh, I occasionally pop up in some other places, but I'm kind of all over the place. And then I have a uh, weekly column at movies.com called Comics on Film, which deals with superhero cinema. Awesome. Well, you were all over the place, man. So I, I, I yeah. definitely look forward to uh, hearing, hearing those those favorite Star Trek episodes and that discussion. Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a lot of fun, definitely. All righty, well... Star Trek and Batman and all the crossovers therein aren't the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's a white uniform, and you're dealing with medical blood, all this other stuff, fluids. Yeah. That thing ain't going to stay white. So in my head, they're treated that it just doesn't even stick. It just repels off it. Earl Grey. So Picard says he won't transfer anyone off the ship, but as a compromise, get ready for this. As a compromise, he will reassign Worf as Wesley's tutor. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. Put some discipline in that boy. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. This is like a choice you could, I, I don't know. I, I would imagine. And I really it. like this story like now. It? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's more later, but yeah, Worf as Wesley's tutor. Melodic Treks. And, uh, you know, I talked to the producers when I first did the show, and the first thing they had me do was take a combination of the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, the Sandy Courage wonderful horn theme, and uh, Jerry's da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, his theme for the first movie, and, and make a theme out of those and combine them. So I did it electronically, and they said, good enough. And I said, oh, look, this is not my specialty. And they said, never mind, you got it. So 18 years later, you know, that was it. The 602 Club. I did definitely feel what you're saying, Matt, like it was a, a Bond greatest hits in that opening sequence. Um, you've got Russians again, well, or supposed to be in Russia. You've got, um, you know, a group of um, terrorists all gathering together about, you know, all these different weapons. And you're trying to ID people. And then, you know, we of course bring back in M um, and then she's having to argue now with um, the government and the military um, and then you know I like that they kind of bring in Bond in a subtle way calling him White Knight this time um, that was cool but yeah I, I think otherwise it feels very familiar but in a great way um, I feel like Arnold dealing with the music um, and then the actors as well taking good direction made a lot of intensity in that scene so you don't feel like you're moving into the film slowly they're coming at you full force and then you know bond runs off with the plane um so i i really liked it and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcast if you're an apple user Get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. 
be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding on the Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Trekkie01D. Celebrating Trek Tuesdays. That's tomorrow, everybody. Wear your Trek. <laughs> yes, and use the hashtag Trek Tuesday. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.